Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the CPC leadership candidates took the turns to attacking longtime MP Pierre Polyev yesterday during the party's French language debate. Were there any winners or losers? We'll talk about that. We'll also analyze the current Texas gun laws and suggest possible solutions to reduce the violence. Wayne Petrosi, professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto's Metropolitan University, will be there for that. And Ontario's election is now one week away. How are the leaders doing heading into the home stretch? Interesting topic. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The conservative leadership uh, debate, uh, the French language debate uh, happened last night. And uh, as expected, uh, the gloves were off, and boy, it got pretty testy sometime. Conservative Party leadership candidates took turns attacking longtime MP Pierre Polyev. Uh, the perceived frontrunner in this race, of course, during the party's French language debate last night in Laval, Quebec. Afterwards, Patrick Brown, the, uh, the mayor of Brampton, Ontario, said he believes that Polyev would be unelectable if he were to win due to his support in the Ottawa truckers' protest earlier this year. He's obviously, you know, searching for the support of the of the Pat Kings of of the country. I just don't think the positions that he takes uh, um, are are electable. Um, you know, I I think if Pierre Polyev wins this leadership, we've already lost the next election. A lot of folks echoing that very sentiment, but uh, let's let's try to dissect what happened yesterday and just what kind of a, an impact it's going to have on the race. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Danielle Beland, who is the director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Uh, Danielle, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for the invitation. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, uh, invariably, you know, when we watch one of these uh, political debates, there's, there's a, a, a propensity for us to want to choose a winner. I, I don't know if you could actually point to one person last night, uh, but it was pretty obvious that it was all ganging up on Pierre Polyev. That seemed to be the strategy of at least Sheree and Brown anyway. Yeah, so um, clearly Pierre Polyev was on the hot seat and he's the leader, right, if you look at the polls and uh, so, so clear that there was uh, a lot of attacks directed at him. Now, you mentioned uh, Brown and Charest, and it's true that they were really the three only people debating, actually debating, uh, because if you look at uh, Roman Barber and Scott Aitchison and even Leslie and Lewis, they were reading notes, but they were not really engaging in a true debate because their French is just not good enough for them to do that. So you had an interesting dynamic here. It seems that Brown and Charest didn't attack each other, right? They they really focused their their fire on on Pierre Poilievre. And after the debate, people asked uh, journalists asked both Brown and Charest whether they had some form of deal or agreement to do that because they, it, it, it it was clear that they 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 um, they didn't attack one another at all. And um, there was an interesting synergy here between the two of them. Is there a winner or a loser? Uh, I think that Jean Charest did very well. He had the advantage. It's you know it was in La the debate was in Laval, um, in Quebec. There were a lot of his supporters uh, in the room. Uh, there were quite a few Poiliev supporters as well. The the crowd was pretty noisy. I think Charest did uh, did well. He had the most to lose here actually because he needs to win big in Quebec in order to have just a chance uh, to uh, finish on top, right? Um, mm -hmm. Pierre Poilievre had to defend himself uh, quite a few times, um, but his French is pretty good, and uh, he, um, you know, he, he's a fighter. Uh, and so I think it was a better debate than the 
the the first official, well, the only official English language debate. Uh, it was better moderated, uh, but because of the language, uh, uh, French challenges for three of the six uh, uh, participants, then, you know, it was really a debate between three people, and Charest and Poilier dominated uh, in part because they have the superior French language skills. Well, exactly, and I, I agree. I, I... Well, I, I don't know. Actually, some of the people in the party that were watching that they were talking to after uh, said that, you know, they didn't even deserve to be on the dais. I mean, they, they can't speak French properly. And uh, all they were doing was reading from, you know, pre-described notes, which I guess we can't really criticize in Ontario because Doug Ford does that in the debates, too. But uh, it, it's it's really seemed to narrow down to what was going to happen there. I, like, I was very interested in how Charest was going to perform uh, and, and how he was going to manage some of the attacks, because we kind of got an inkling, didn't we, Daniel, about the points that Paulie was going to bring up, you know, uh, uh, Charest's association with Huawei uh, back when he was just a private citizen, of course, and uh, the work that he was doing for them. And we knew what the attacks were going to be. Score that one between Charest and Paulie because there, there seemed to be a lot of venom there between those two. Yes, absolutely. Now, they sh shook each other's hand at, after this debate. I don't think they did that last time, or I didn't see it. Um, not in front of the cameras, at least. Um, but it's true that there is bad blood between the two of them. And I think Patrick Brown is also, you know, you can see that there is a, during the scrum, it was clear that he also uh, has a, you know, a negative uh, perception of Poiliev. Um, So, you know, Charest did his best to fight back, and he, he's a strong debater. But the Huawei issue is probably the one that is the, was the hardest for him to counter. And, and it's true that for a conservative uh, uh, want-to-be leader <laughs> uh, to have worked with a, um, a company like Huawei, considering um, the tensions between China and Canada and how many conservatives perceive China, um, I think that it's uh, it's really a challenge for him, and it, it it it's not just during this debate; it's during the entire race. I think we'll hear that more, probably more and more, uh, in the next few weeks and months. Yeah, there's a couple of things here that you know may be highlights, and then in hindsight, you look at it. I mean, all three of the the main they all each accused each other of being corrupt. Uh, well, I shouldn't. Hey, maybe phrase it that way, because as you as you mentioned, Danielle, uh, Charest and, and and Brown looked like uh, you know they were brothers in this whole thing. But Paulie have accused them of being corrupt. They accused him of being corrupt. But I thought one of the the better attack lines that, that I thought resonated with the people was uh, Patrick Brown going after Paulie and talking about his propensity for uh, for Bitcoin and suggesting that he really doesn't know what he's talking about with financial issues. And uh, Brown's quote was, if Canada had gone all out on Bitcoin like El Salvador did, uh, who adopted it as official currency, the country would be headed for insolvency. That, that's that's policy as opposed to personal things. But, I mean, it, I, it's it's a major issue, I think, for an awful lot of people, especially uh, for Polyev, who tries to make himself out to be the uh, the fiscal expert in this in this group. Yeah, that and his, uh, some of his comments about the, the Bank of Canada, yeah. uh, I think, uh, came back to the front stage today. And I think you will hear a lot about that, too, over the next few months. Um, this, is, uh, this is a challenge uh, for Poiliev. You're right. This is about policy, but it's also about his judgment, right? So there is a personal aspect to this uh, as well. Um, uh, the Bitcoin is especially bad, I think. Um, but because obviously <laughs> things are 
uh, are, are not going well on that front. And, and, and it's not something that you, you know, you, you, that you as a potential leader, you actually need to talk about that much. For the Bank of Canada, I think some people like uh, uh, this rhetoric against the Bank of Canada because it's consistent with the kind of po the populist appeal or, or uh, um, you know, discourse of Poiliev. It's, it's, it's part of his, I would say, the way he frames his campaign. Uh, but for people who are more centrist, uh, conservatives who are closer to the center, Uh, attacking an institution like the Bank of Canada is really perceived as a very dangerous game to play from a policy and from an economic standpoint. Well, and that was one of the accusations, wasn't it, that uh, Charest leveled at Polyev, that he's just a populist. Uh, Charest uh, saying, hey, no, we, we need a PC leader who isn't beholden to conspiracy theories, uh, linking him with some of the things that were going on during the uh, the truckers' uh, occupation of, of Ottawa for so long and, and the border points and things of that nature, which a lot of people are still upset about. What about, let's, let's talk about the most controversial piece of legislation, which is provincial legislation, not federal legislation. Uh, and that's because uh, it, it's still very controversial, of course, about uh, in the province of Quebec itself. And, and that's what has been known as, as the, uh, the religious law now, Bill C-21, and where the, the, the people and where the candidates stand on that particular issue. Uh, that was an interesting part of the discussion. Yes, especially for a Quebec francophone audience, uh, or Quebec audience more generally. Um, you know, it, it's, it's difficult for some of the candidates, uh, when, and the case, especially of the Poilievre and, and Charest, how to craft a position, uh, that will not upset Francophone, uh, uh, members from Quebec, uh, but at the same time send the message that they are for, say, religious freedom and so forth. So it's actually, a, a, and we know that, you know, uh, at the, uh, In terms of the liberals, uh, uh, we look at uh, Justin Trudeau. He has also struggled with this uh, mm -hmm. over time. So it's not something that is, is just um, uh, a, a, pos a puzzle or a challenge for the, the, the conservatives. It's true that the other candidates are very strongly against. But, you know, Roman Baber or uh, uh, even Patrick Brown are not expected or Leslie Lewis to uh, win big in Quebec. So the battle there seems to be... Well, Charest and Poiliev primarily, um, and and you know they um, they have to take this kind of sometimes ambiguous position, uh, or uh, Poiliev was accused of saying one thing in uh, in one part of the country in Quebec yeah. and one thing outside of Quebec. This is something that uh, uh, you know um, can happen, <laughs> and and this type of accusation is quite common in Canadian politics, not just not just within the Conservative Party of Canada, but you can see that. Um, You can say, well, I yes, if I was member, like Poliev said yesterday, member of the National Assembly in Quebec, I would have voted against. But then when do you do if you become prime minister regarding this file is, is another matter entirely. And he had a well-crafted answer. I mean, clearly they thought that out, didn't they, Danielle? He says, he says I've always been against it. Well, he it wasn't necessarily that because he did speak in favor of it and that was Charest's accusation that you speak uh, you know in favor of it when you're in Quebec and against it outside uh, but I think Polyev's explanation I'm going to paraphrase it here was he says I'm against it but if I become prime minister I'm not going to do anything about it uh, and of course then they accused him of waffling on the issue so it's it, it, it was it was wordsmithing to a great extent but it, I guess it's you know we'll find out in, in the course of time just whether or not people are going to buy the argument yes uh, but uh, yeah I think 
Kualiev defended himself quite well uh, uh, yeah. yesterday overall. Again, the fact that he is he has quite good skills in French. Uh, his uh, his father, um, um, francophone uh, from Saskatchewan, teacher. Yeah. Uh, he learned French uh, uh, quite well, <laughs> and so he's not as comfortable in French as, as Jean Charest. But I think his level of French is 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 certainly uh, strong enough to be able to really debate and defend your position. Patrick Brown, less so. He he, he was uh, again. Um, he made quite a few mistakes in French, and he tried to uh, uh, be really visible. But you can see that the the, the debate, the dynamic, was really a a Charé and Poiliev battle. And then Brown was raising his hand and making quite a bit of noise, but um, he was perceived more as someone who was reinforcing some of Charé's points uh, um, and, and, and fighting Poiliev um, than uh, someone who was really on equal uh, standing with Charé and, and Poiliev. Daniel, maybe you could just uh, talk to us briefly. I've got a couple of minutes left here about the importance of the French language debate. And I think you touched on it off the top. Uh, the last two conservative leaders, uh, basically one, uh, there, that, that being, of course, Andrew Scheer and Aaron O'Toole, uh, because of the, the support that they got from the Quebec voters and because of the uh, the rank balloting system uh, and some of the key issues that are going on there, uh, that, that Quebec vote's very important to this, isn't it? Yes, even if... Uh, the Conservatives have relatively few seats uh, in Quebec if you compare to the number of seats they have uh, in Alberta or even in Ontario. The, the way the, the voting system is designed is that, you know, you um, ridings where you don't have a, a, a Conservative MP or where you have even a limited number of Conservative uh, members, uh, as long as you're above 100 uh, uh, members uh, uh, in your riding, you have equal weight compared to the other ridings that may have, you know, a very large number of conservative members. And, of course, blue ridings where people vote conservatives, the majority of people vote conservatives uh, election after election. So that gives a, a strong, yes, a, a strong role uh, to Quebec considering the, these rules. And, and so Quebec is important demographically. It's the second largest province. Uh, uh, and, and it's... I would say Ontario is still, of course, super important. And we mm -hmm. have here, that's interesting, the dynamics, right? This time we have no candidate from, from the West. I mean, Pierre Poiliev was born and raised in Calgary, but he's been in, uh, in Ottawa uh, uh, MP for Carlton for many years, since 2004. Um, and then, of course, uh, uh, Baber, Brown, Lewis, are, uh, and Aitchison uh, are uh, Ontarians. So there is only the non-Ontarian is Jean Charest. And he hopes that the fact that he's the only candidate from Quebec and he's very well known there, obviously, will help him win big in Quebec. Because for him, and that's why yesterday's debate was so crucial for him, much more than for any of the other candidates, including Poilier, frankly, is that he's betting big on Quebec. Uh, he has, of course, to get votes outside of Quebec. I think Ontario is in uh, Atlantic Canada are probably the places where he, he hopes to get more votes among members and to recruit new members as well. But Quebec is really uh, 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 the, the 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 center of his of his uh, of his campaign. So important debate for all the well for I would say uh, uh, Poiliev, Charest, and, and to a lesser extent Brown, but especially important for Charest. And overall, he did well. So that's good news for him. Mm -hmm. uh, we got a long way to go. The leadership's not until, uh, of course, after the summertime, but a uh, uh, very interesting night last night. Daniel, as always, thank you so much for uh, your perspective on this. really appreciate the time today. 
You're most welcome. Take care. You too. Daniel Bellan, Director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today would have been the last day of school for the uh, children and students in uh, Uvalde, Texas. Uh, School year cut short, of course, on Tuesday after an 18-year-old gunman opened fire, killing 19 students and two teachers. Funeral preparations have now replaced summer vacation plans as this community now finds itself connected to so many other American cities that have been plagued by gun violence. Global's Reggie Cicchini has details. Under a blistering Texas sun, community members gathered for a somber, prayerful vigil. Families once connected by a sense of community, now connected by a sense of loss. I cry a lot. You may cry because our hearts are broken. The bodies of some children have been released to their families. 90 minutes east, four students and one adult remain hospitalized in San Antonio. The investigation has yet to provide families with the why, the suspect's social media providing a starting point while opening up more questions. Outside of Robb Elementary, candles and flowers grow as this city only starts to understand the gravity of this new reality. The president will visit the scene in the coming days, his second trip to a mass shooting scene in less than two weeks. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Uvalde, Texas. Well, as you might have expected, uh, the discussion, uh, the vigils are one thing, but the debate about gun control has once again uh, moved to the front burner because of what's happening. And uh, as ever, it, it's a very polarizing discussion and issue. Uh, some suggesting that this is the time. Uh, of course, they said that after Buffalo. They said that after Parkland. I mean, we can go down that list if we want to. So how will this end? Uh, joining us to talk about this is Wayne Petrosi. Wayne is a professor in the Department of Politics and Public Administration at Toronto Metropolitan University. Uh, professor, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Oh, you're welcome. It's amazing the way the headlines have changed. I mean, the, the grief, the vigils, and, and the, 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 the feelings of, of the, I guess, sorrow and depression that so many people are feeling. But with this comes outrage. Uh, and again, the, the, the gun debate, which has been raging, I don't know how many generations, Wayne, down south in the United States. And uh, it's, it seems to be deadlocked. And I don't know that an event like this is going to change that deadlock. No, that seems unlikely. In fact, what I think is notable about the current catastrophe is how brief the period of we have to get together, we have to find a way to solve this, how brief that period really was. I mean, last night, the governor of Texas uh, was making public comments, the lowest form of whataboutism, by in response to a question about the, the mass murder, slaughter, in that elementary school said, yeah, but what about New York? What about Chicago? They have, they have gun violence as if somehow anyone is even suggesting there's a there's a magic solution that make it all go away instantaneously it's just it's just so sad well and again you know the 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 acolytes for this too i mean fox news has made a point of uh, of reporting the tragedy i'll use that word advisedly uh, but then defending uh, the, the use of guns and the, and the possession of guns. They, you know, they, they, they're blaming everything else. You know, they didn't have enough security there. They didn't have enough guns in the school to defend themselves. And, uh, and this was a, probably an illegal immigrant anyway. So, you know, we need to toughen up our immigration policies. Yeah, they, they do a, an incredible job of talking around the issue, don't they? Well, they certainly do. And, and now, of course, the flavor of the month in terms of what, where the real blame lays, it's mental health. And apparently... Uh, I, I think a British reporter, again, interviewing Ted Cruz yesterday, 
uh, it, 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 Cruz gave the answer of, you know, mental health. And the, 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 the reporter asked, but wait a minute, there's mental health in countries around the world. Why only in America does it manifest in, in mentally, quote, ill patients picking up uh, long arms and slaughtering numerous people? Well, how is it that only in America the mentally ill pick up guns and kill so many? And Cruz simply walked away from the interview. Uh, this is after he made those outlandish comments that the solution should have been that the lockdown of the school, there should only be one door in the school and it's locked and there should be an armed guard there. So again, defending the use of guns and, and suggesting that the teachers in any of these schools, of course, uh, should take uh, lessons in how to use firearms in case somebody comes in. It, it's 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 def the art of deflection, certainly, uh, which I guess is very depressing for somebody that thinks maybe something positive can come of this. Yeah, I mean, the deflection and, and, you know, and I think it also kind of draws us away from a real underlying issue. And that is, you know, we, we, we think of, of gun control. We listen, watch the Americans talk about it and deliberate over it. And we keep hearing about polls that say this high percentage believes in this form of gun control and this large number of people believes in that form of gun control. But it's really not about public opinion. Yes. They have a structural problem in that Senate where Ted Cruz hangs out. You know, you've got, just as an example, 15 small Republican states, states, small states with large, light populations, Republican senators. That's 30 seats. California has two. And guess what? Uh, the, uh, proportionately, the percentage of Americans opposed to gun control is in those small states. They tend to be rural. And so it... Public opinion, in a sense, isn't even what it's all about. The, and, but the characterization of it, though, I think, is, is somewhat troubling. Even, uh, and because so many people, you know, if you hear this often enough, they start to believe it. Any of the pieces of legislation that have been proposed, and this goes well back, as you say, into past administrations, uh, and, and immediately the the advocates to, for guns say they're going to take your guns away. And, and nobody has ever proposed that. They're talking about gun control and basically vetting of people that want to get a gun. And, and that seems to be off the table. By the way, I should remind our listeners, it's not lost on us, that uh, this weekend is also the annual convention for the National Rifle Association. So, you know, they, they're the, the boldest defenders of this. And Ted Cruz, apparently, is the, uh, the U.S. senator with, who gets the most money from the NRA. But Mitch McConnell's in the top five there, too. And that's, that's where the roadblock is, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's it's certainly there, and you know it's uh, it must be terrible to be a parent of a child in in America, uh, as you, you you may have noticed this morning's uh, front page of the Toronto Star that just li listed the schools that had been victimized by this kind of of, of assault since 2013, and it mostly filled the first page of of the Toronto Star. Uh, you know, so we we. We talk around it, and you're right. No one is talking about getting rid of guns. I mean, this. I mean, the things that they're talking about. I mean, look, Texas again. In Texas, it's 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 actually you do not require a permit to to carry a a, a weapon in public, a concealed weapon in public, a concealed weapon in public. So Ted Cruz can talk all he likes, but the fact of the matter is, somebody could approach a school even with a guard, and he can and carry a concealed weapon, and that guard wouldn't have any idea until it was too late. Which we, I understand is, is actually the occurrence here. I mean, he was stopped before he got into the building, but unsuccessfully. Uh, you know, 
But again, it's it's you know two assault weapons, and as as President Biden mentioned in his comments that night, of course, you know the only reason you would want a assault weapon is to kill somebody. Uh, it's this is not about hunting or you know people that want to use handguns for for play or for pleasure or whatever the case might be. Uh, the weapons are readily available. This guy just turned eighteen and he he just went out and got them because uh, it's allowed. It's a, it's legal in 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 Texas and and a bunch of other states as well. And and the other element to this too, because I know you've talked about this in the past, uh, Wayne, when we've talked about some of the the problems with legislative uh, processes in the states, is the, the the Republicans, of course, some time ago put in what they call the filibuster. Uh, there are 100 senators, but it's not 50 plus one that gets anything passed. You have to have 60 of those 100, uh, or or it fails. And and that's something the Republicans have held on to. And, and a few Democrats, we should say, by the way, because you would have thought with a slim majority they could have overturned that, but they don't seem to want to do that. So there's 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 some, there's some mindset problems going on here too, uh, because when they have had pieces of legislation that have been introduced, some of them have passed through the, the House of Representatives through the Congress, but they die in the Senate, and, and until somebody does something about that, uh, nothing of any consequence is going to get passed. No, that's very true, and I think people misunderstand the legislative process in the United States, particularly as a, as you point out correctly, as it applies to the Senate. You know, we imagine in this in our in our mind that how is it possible that a majority of Republican uh, of senators don't can't or won't support any kind of 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 gun control measures? And the reality is, I don't need fifty one to oppose gun control. I need ten. Mm -hmm. And ten senators is, is not a is not a, a huge ask in terms of lobbying efforts, in terms of you know keeping track of races. Again, especially in those rural states where you know the money goes an awful long way in North Dakota, if in terms of donating to for a campaign for a Senate seat, it goes an awful long way in Idaho, in Montana. There, that that amount of money really speaks loudly, and and it's it's that mindset that perpetuates the discussion. I mean, I, I'm sure our listeners will remember an incident. I guess it was about five years ago. A bunch of Republicans were playing a softball game in Washington, and this guy just walked up in the field and shot one of the guys, a Republican congressman, uh, and as he 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 survived thankfully, uh, but he came out and said, "No, there should be no gun control." I mean, you know, here's a victim saying there should be no gun control of any jurisdiction. And it's, it's mind-boggling, the mindset that they take. Well, it is. And, and, you know, that victim, I think, was, by memory, sir, Steve uh, Scalise, who's now mm -hmm. second or third in command in, in, in the House for the Republicans, yeah. and from, uh, I think, Louisiana. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's one sense you're surprised, another sense, nah, probably not surprised. Talk to us about, the, the, and, and again, Ted Cruz example comes to mind because he's uh, you know, one of the guys that gets so much money from the National Rifle Association. If they want to turn the tables on this, Wayne, and say well, this is just a mental health issue, why not make it more difficult or make it impossible for people that have uh, issues like that to obtain a gun? They don't, they don't want to answer that question. And that's what gun control really is. It's, it's really a vetting process for people that want to get a firearm. Oh, yeah, absolutely it is. A background check is, is a pretty simple, straightforward process. And you would think that should be easy for everyone to get around and, and come get in support of. It's not going to happen. And similarly, you would expect if they were genuinely believe that the issue, underlying issue was not guns but mental health, that they might uh, support 
uh, initiatives work in Congress to increase uh, government spending on mental health. But by the way, they don't. Cases of suicide, cases of domestic violence, mental health issues, substance abuse, and things of this nature should exclude it. That was the legislation that did pass through the Congress uh, a couple of years ago. And, of course, it died in the, on the Senate because of McConnell and uh, the hold that he has over the Republicans in a situation like that. But that's, that's common sense. You know, if, if you're prone to violence, if you have issues like that, or you, know, you, sh- you shouldn't have a gun. And, and, you know, that's, that's for them to say it's a mental health issue. As you say, mental health, sadly, is a scourge right across the world. But nobody, nobody has, uh, you know, the, the same access to firearms as, as they do in the States, which is why this happens. And I think you pointed out, on the, I mean, yeah, it wasn't the Star article that they were talking about. The United States is 5% of the global population, but they own 47% of the firearms uh, that, are, that are owned by private citizens, not by, you know, military or anything else. That's a staggering yeah. statistic. Well, it is. And, you know, again, that, that touches on another uh, point that Republicans always kind of resort to or come back to. And they claim the solution to this kind of violence is not gun control, but more people having guns. And yet, you know, if you take a historical perspective on that, and, and you know, it, it makes no more sense. In 1990, early 1990s, the estimates were that uh, privately held far- firearms in the United States totaled 200 million. The most recent data around 2020 that looks at private arms being held by Americans, it's now 300 million. So we've all increased the number of guns out there by 50% in the, in the public. And has their murder rate gone down? Have school shootings gone down? Have, have slaughters in, in, in grocery stores and, and retail outlets, has all that declined as more and more Americans arm themselves? No. And one other point on that. The estimates are that maybe 30% of Americans, adult Americans, own a gun. Okay, 70% don't. But those 30% are they're ready for Armageddon. Which, by the way, was what the Second Amendment was included in, in the U.S. Constitution for. You know, nobody seems to want to put a historical perspective on that, but the reason that the the Founding Fathers put that in there is that they were afraid that the British were going to reinvade them. Uh, and, and they wanted the farmers, they didn't have enough people in the militia, they wanted people to take up arms in case the British came back. Uh, well, it's 2022, and they haven't come back yet. Uh, yet they, they cling to this and, and, and say that's they don't want to talk about the historical perspective. They just say, the Constitution says I can have them, so I'm going to get as many as I want. Well, you know, and, and that, at least in one sense, that's consistent. Their approach on the Constitution is what they call the literal approach, and that's what's going to lead to Roe versus Wade being overturned and a whole mm-hmm. bunch of other things likely getting turned on their heads. So this at least they're consistent here. They believe in a literal uh, uh, view of the Constitution, and if it says I can bear arms, I can bear arms. The beast they've created, though, of course, as we've seen examples of this, is uh, because people can do this, there's a whole lot of paramilitary organizations uh, in the United States right now that are collecting these, actually carrying out military training operations, basically under the guise of saying, if we don't like what this government's doing, we are going to overthrow it. Uh, and, and, you know, that's, that's the beast that, that's a result of that kind of mindset. Oh, it certainly is. And in fact, you know, the, the irony is now that whereas uh, decades ago in the operation of militias in many states would have uh, triggered some form of surveillance by, by public authorities, today in many states it doesn't even trigger that because they're open carry states. 
So mm. I can walk down the street in fatigues with an AR-15 in, in, cradled in my arms, and that is not a cause for intervention by public authorities. Well, isn't that part of the problem? What was it? Well, three years ago, they had that shooting. I think, I think it's in Houston. There we go in Texas again. Uh, a guy was holed up in a in a parking garage, a three or four story parking garage. And when authorities got there, I mean, they couldn't tell if that was a shooter or just a citizen because it's it's open carry. Uh, you know, people can walk down the street with rifles, with handguns, whatever they want. Uh, I don't mean to sound cynical about this, but how do you pick out the bad guys when everybody's armed? Difficult question. Uh, and and uh, it's, again, part of the debate, and I know that the Senate's going to debate this again and again, and uh, I don't know that anything different is going to happen this time around. Uh, we do have to take a break. Uh, with Wayne, thank you so much for the time. It's a pleasure to have you back on the program today, and we'll continue to watch what's going to be happening south of the border. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Seven days away from the election. We, we should remind you, by the way, that the advance polls are still going to be open for a couple more days, uh, if uh, that's what you're inclined to do. Uh, and uh, make sure you vote. Uh, there's some pretty good numbers. We're going to spend some time talking about the provincial election in this uh, this hour, because uh, there are a number of different perspectives. And, and there are still some people that have not made up their mind. And uh, the information they can get, of course, between now and voting day, could actually sway them in one direction or another. But with the election only a week away, it uh, looks like the party leaders today are going to be focusing on uh, pressing issues in some pretty key writings. Nicole Reese has details. NDP leader Andrea Horvath will start her day in Brampton, where her party won three seats in 2018 and where she hopes to either retain or grow the NDP's footprint in the vote-rich region. She will be talking about a plan to end hallway medicine, then will travel to Kitchener and Fergus. Progressive Conservative leader Doug Ford will not be making any announcements or taking any media questions today, with his only scheduled event being a rally in Horvath's home turf of Hamilton. Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca is set to make an announcement in Richmond Hill, and Green Party leader Mike Schreiner is spending the day in Guelph. Yesterday, all the main party leaders pledged to change Ontario's much-criticized autism program. Nicole Reese, The Canadian Press. Well, there's some other main issues, too, that people are starting to ask about. Uh, to uh, lay some groundwork for this and uh, give us some perspective, so please to welcome back to the program Alan Hale. Alan, of course, is a reporter for Queen's Park Today. Uh, Alan, pleasure having you back on the program. Hope you're doing well these days. Oh, I am. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's good to have you with us. I know as somebody who's been covering Queen's Park for some time and uh, trying to get the story behind the story, I, I know that, like all of us, you're shocked that Doug Ford's not going to be taking any questions today uh, when he comes to <laughs> Hamilton. Um, and this is, I, I saw, I'm sure you saw Steve Pakin's uh, essay in, in t on his TVO webpage uh, the other day, too, saying this is bad for democracy. It's, it's, uh, it's run and hide politics. Um, but they're doing it, and he's still ahead in the polls. So what do you guys make of this? Well, it is uh, definitely something that is troubling, I think. Um, we did our own count uh, in Queen's Park Day uh, last week, and as best as I could get, because the PCs would not say how many of their candidates are skipping debates this, uh, this cycle, but as best I could count, I got to at least 63 candidates, which is more than half. And uh, people I spoke to said that they would be surprised if it wasn't quite a bit higher. And I mean, the justification uh, from the PCs basically is that they, their time is better spent 
um, door knocking, like canvassing, talking to people instead of going to debates, which, you know, uh, it's which admittedly are often badly uh, attended. Um, but I mean, these are something these are like they've been having candidate debates since like ancient Greece. This is like mm-hmm. a core part of the system. And they've uh, the people who are running the PC campaign just don't see it as worth their time. And there's a lot of people who are arguing that that is that's an erosion of democratic norms, that it's bad for the uh, for the democratic system overall to just be skipping these things. And the liberals have decided to after seeing me uh, my reporting as well as Steve's to sort of try to make an issue out of this. They even had a guy in a chicken suit dancing in front of people's <laughs> campaign offices. They put it on Twitter. It's quite a complete with the uh, complete with the song from like Oktoberfest. The bird dance. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, they're trying to make it into a thing. It's definitely something that is the PCs have just decided they don't want to bother with. And yes, it's, if you if you didn't see a PC candidate at your local debate this uh, this month, you are not the only one. And and this is what I find strange. I mean, I, this we're not you know oblivious to the fact that I mean, this is the way that that some campaigns have been run lately. You know, that's basically how Stephen Harper ran his campaign when he was uh, prime minister. Um, you know, there's very little in the way he had to show up for those debates, the national debates. Uh, but mm-hmm. even when he was doing pe- campaign announcements, he'd maybe take two or three questions. And I've, we were told uh, the uh, people who were going to ask questions were pre-selected, so that he knew what was going to happen. And then, bingo, he was off. And I guess it's no coincidence, really, Alan, that uh, the Tory Kanek, who was running the Harper campaign, is running Doug Ford's campaign, and they, it's, so he's using the, essentially the same strategy that worked for Harper. I mean, yeah, <laughs> this is definitely something that um, is more common in the um, in the conservative world. Uh, it is um, one uh, one person I talked to sort of uh, explained it that um, the P- the conservatives don't have the same like fear of like backlash to not going to these things, especially if that backlash is coming from the quote unquote mainstream media. Um, which I think is probably the case. They don't, um, but it is. They're just making. Are you, but really, this is just a raw, like completely political calculation. They really do think that this is be- like door knocking is be- is a better use of their time, and um, to hell with <laughs> with the any what anybody else says or warns about like the state of like dem- democracy. <laughs> Well, and I, I understand it from a strategic time. I don't like it, but I, I see mm-hmm. where they're coming from, and I disagree with the, the way they're doing it. But and we saw this in the, the English language debate the other day, didn't we? I mean, you know, Doug Ford just stuck, it hit his binder there, and he just kept repeating the talking points. And and when you're in a scrum or if in a debate, uh, it's very difficult to do that because the questions are going to come up, and especially when it's free form. Um, and we saw that last night with the French language debate for the federal party. Uh, you know the people that didn't speak French very well just kept going back to their binder and their and their, you know, their prescribed notes on this. And uh, it's I understand you want to make sure that you get all your points across, but I think the public wants to understand exactly where you stand on issues, uh, and and basically you know what kind of an individual, what kind of a leader you're going to be. And we're not getting much of that. But I'm surprised that it's it's basically been told to all of the candidates right now, all the conservative candidates across the province, essentially, don't go, don't show up. 
Uh, go knock on doors if you want, but don't go show up at the debates because you might say something that might disagree with our, our policy. Well, you might cause us an embarrassment. Uh, so they're just playing it safe at this point. But uh, it's awfully frustrating. And and I know some people say, well, those those media types, they can't get their hands on the premier. I think the people want to hear these things. I mean, you know, if, if candidate A is going to be going door to door, knocking on doors, that's great. You know, knock yourself out. But nobody from the media is going to follow that candidate around to find out what they're saying and what they're feeling about issues. But they will get that in a candidate's debate, won't they? Mm-hmm. And, I mean, these, like the whole binder thing, um, unfortunately, sticking to talking points is kind of uh, the uh, Ford's MO uh, regardless. It's actually not just Ford. Like a lot of high-level politicians, if they don't know how to answer, if they don't have a good answer for something, they just won't answer. And they'll just, they'll go immediately start running a tape in their head about what their talking points are, and they'll say the talking points instead of answering questions. And this is something that Ford and Del Duca and Horvath are all guilty of. And it's very, it's very common. Uh, and, you know, p- people often get frustrated with the media for not holding these people to account. And, I mean, we can always do our job better. Don't get me wrong. But when we do ask these questions, we don't often get answers because they just don't answer. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I want, I'm, not, I'm not trying to, you know, knock everybody at this gate, but there's, there's a consensus, I think, and let's let's talk about the elephant in the room. An awful lot of people that are running for public office or even who hold public office aren't very good public speakers. Uh, you, know, it's, you have to have a knack. Not everybody can be good at it. You can get better at it, uh, but they don't want to, you know, be show, to, 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 to not have that skill. I, I, I'm still bugged about the fact, I don't know how you guys in the press gallery put it, every time somebody stands up in question period, they're reading the question or reading the answer. And, and it's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be a dialogue back and forth. It's, it just seems as if politics has become a scripted exercise now, doesn't it? Yeah, and I think that is, I think at this point, it's because of uh, the amount of risk aversion that we are seeing. Yeah. We know the, the, the PCs have a very understandable motivation to be risk averse because uh, they are the front runners. Uh, as long as, like, as long as nothing terrible happens you know, as long as Doug Ford doesn't say something com- terribly controversial and riles everybody up this next week, he's probably going to win if you believe the polls. So they are, they have every incentive to like limit his uh, exposure to the media because he does have this, um, he does have this track record of putting his foot in his mouth and causing problems for him for, you know, a week at a time. Um, so they they have that incentive, but I don't know, just you. You see, this election has been marked by just a lot of, like, opposition research and, like, scandal-mongering. Like, the PCs and the Liberals are, like, digging, and the and the NDP are all digging through everything they can find to try to create some sort of, um, like, miniature scandal to uh, get a candidate knocked out of uh, the campaign. And it's worked. We've seen several candidates get ditched for odd comments using the f uh using the f word in um <laughs> in like a minecraft server one kid who went eight like a teen mm-hmm. young candidate it was um yeah we see we saw steve Parrish, the former mayor of ajax get knocked off for um uh for supporting keeping the st- name of a street who was named after a uh, a world war ii like nazi captain 
and like but that had been like over a decade ago so it's just like a lot of looking for these things there's a lot of this um opposition research just trying to get people knocked out of the running that way and i guess that's led to a very high level of like watch the watch what you say because you never know when it'll come back to bite you and there's an appetite for getting rid of these candidates Oh, exactly. So th- that's the backdrop and the background on it. I, g- I got to ask you something else, too, because there's a story in the uh, Toronto Star about this the other day, uh, suggesting that Doug Ford's got something against the city of Ottawa. And, and th- I mean, for instance, I mean, they're going through hell right now. I've got some friends up in, in the nation's capital right now, and uh, they got devastated, of course, by the storms over the weekend. A lot worse than it is here in southern Ontario. And he was supposed to be there today, as a matter of fact, and they canceled that. Uh, and they're saying, well, wait a second here. You know, every time things get bad and the province should be stepping in, it's it's almost a part of the job, isn't it, Alan? When when there's tragedy, the leader shows up there to say, I've, I've got your back. We, we feel your pain. And he hasn't done much of that during time. He did during the flooding up near where his cottage was. I remember that a couple of years ago. And I know he did make a stop in Uxbridge, uh, but that's Peter Bethlehem Falby's uh, writing. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a pretty safe area to go. They, they don't do well in Ottawa, though. I think they've got a couple of seats there, but it's actually in the outskirts, not in the downtown, the the city proper. Is is this him avoiding controversy? You you, you may remember during I yeah I, I know you remember because you reported on it uh, during the the truckers' uh, uh, occupation of downtown Ottawa. I mean, he was seen up in his cottage snowmobiling, as opposed to being there. <laughs> That's it's, right. It's, um... it's a different different kind of a, approach to leadership. Yeah, I don't know whether it's specifically Ottawa. Or something about like the, uh, any kind of political calculation. The PCs have just like decided that going to Ottawa itself is not worth it for Ford. I mean, they do have they do have uh, announcements in Ottawa, but usually other like cabinet members or stuff like that. Yeah. I do think it is again the risk aversion. Like, and when you saw it with the um, you saw it with uh, the convoy, like the. Uh, We've heard that uh, the PC's like official line inside the government at that point was not to get involved. So Ford showing up, possibly being linked or to the as uh, being seen too chummy with the protesters, or you know saying something that was that would come back to bite him. Uh, that was probably what they were thinking there. Well, um, you remember and- the, remember the first week, Alan. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. they asked him about it. Uh, you guys asked him about it in, in the, the media. In the and he basically said, I'm for the truckers. Oh, yeah, they, they, these guys. And, and uh, I'm sure somebody in the party said, uh, Doug, why don't you go up to the cottage this weekend, uh, away from all the microphones <laughs> and everything, you know, because I, that was the wrong answer. Um, so I, I, that's that risk aversion you were talking about. He's straddling the line. He was trying to straddle yeah. the line between, like, and he didn't know how, like, entrenched and, like, nasty that was going to get at that point. But he was trying to like straddle the line between those two those two separate like groups <laughs> and when we saw and when it comes to like the storm this past weekend i i guess they didn't really think that it was important enough to like stop the campaign and um and go to one of these places uh uh until uh Stephen del duca started calling them out for it <laughs> And then suddenly the premier showed up in Uxbridge, which is, uh, for those who don't know, is just outside of, uh, like, the GTA, which is not very far to go. Um, But he did go. He did tour. um, And, you know, whether that was damage control or that was always the plan, I don't don't know. But it's sure he didn't he definitely didn't go all the way out to Ottawa. (laughs) 
Well, I know we're just about out of time here, but it, it, it's it's not as if anybody expected to start picking up tree trunks and start cleaning up. Uh, mm-hmm. But there is an opportunity for that, you know, with, during the flooding in the southern United States. I mean, Barack Obama was there putting sandbags out. And, and I know some, you know, skeptics might say, well, it's just a photo op. But, yeah, to a point it is. But the people that were being affected by that can look at that and say, yeah, he was here. He, he paid attention. Uh, and I, I just think it's a lost opportunity. But on the other hand, when you start looking at the polling here, you know, maybe they're thinking, hey, you know, we don't need it. You know, it's, why, why risk something at this stage? And that seems to be the mindset. Anyway, uh, a week away from the big day and uh, what's going to happen. Uh, I, I, hopefully we can hook up again before Election Day next week, Alan, and talk about what you see as they head down the home stretch. But thanks for spending some time with us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Take care, Al. Alan. Alan. Uh, of course, Alan Hale reporting uh, with Queen's Park today uh, following uh, what has turned out to be a rather interesting election, a rather dull, mundane election in the uh, the eyes of an awful lot of the experts. But uh, I hope that doesn't affect the turnout uh, come election day. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.